Genesis chapter 25, and we'll do verses 1 through 18. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Latushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanok, Abida, and Ildaah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beir the high Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jatur, Naphish, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments. Twelve princes, according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, open our eyes to see your word as you have written it, that we may see Christ glorified. Lord, let nothing that I say distract your people from trusting Christ and following Christ. And let all that your spirit says through me, preaching your word, be edifying to your church. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I grew up in Southern Baptist churches. A lot of you know that about me. And every Mother's Day, we had this tradition. All of the moms would stand up, and the pastor would spend what seemed to me like 15 minutes sorting out the moms, the moms with the most children, the moms with the fewest children, the moms who had been moms the longest, and the newest moms, and the youngest moms, the oldest moms. In the end, all the moms got dead wilted flowers of some sort, and I was always happy as a kid because the longer the preacher played the Hallmark game, I reckoned that meant his sermon would be shorter, right? So, so in honor of that tradition, I have a special for you. Happy Mother's Day. You're going to die. <laughs> and we will put the flowers on your casket. All of us, all of us, unless Christ returns in our lifetime, all of us will die. And the message we're going to see in this morning's text, praise God, is simply this. You're going to die. Live accordingly. The grass withers. 
Flowers fade, but the word of the Lord lives forever. As we examine Abraham's legacy and these last years of his life, we'll see what it means to live accordingly. You're going to die, live accordingly. What does that mean? Let's look at Abraham's life. So let's look at verse 1 and begin. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. Now, we don't think much about Keturah. Not much at all because there's, this is the only time we see her in the Bible. Aside from uh, Chronicles when there's some other genealogies given. There's no backstory to her. We don't know where she's from. She's not the main character in Abraham's story, and none of us grew up learning Sunday school lessons about Keturah. So let's do a little work and place her in the timeline here. Abraham was called and moved to Canaan at age 75. So that's way back. I don't know how many sermons we've preached on on Abraham, but that was at the beginning, way back in chapter 11. He was called in chapter 11. He moved to Canaan at age 75. And then, 11 years later, he turns 86, and he has his first son, Ishmael, with the Egyptian servant, Hagar. Isaac was born when Abraham was 100. Abraham was 137 when Sarah died, and he was 140 when Isaac married Rebekah. So, if you're doing the math, after Isaac leaves home, Abraham is 140 years old, and he doesn't know it at the time, but he still has another 35 years to live. That would be like someone who's 50, a normal person who's 50, someone not Abraham. 35, though, is a long time. 35 years is a long time to live all by yourself if you're used to having a wonderful wife like Sarah around. And it's especially a long time. If you've got this miraculous supernatural vigor that Abraham has, Sarah's gone, right? And as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians, the bonds of that marriage have been released. So there's, there's nothing wrong with Abraham taking that supernatural vigor and marrying again and having a bunch more kids. Don't forget, don't forget this about Abraham. And I'm saying this for those of you who are a little bit disturbed by Keturah's presence in the story. Because she's a little, makes us feel a little uncomfortable because we already have that other woman, uh, Hagar, and that was odd. And this, though, is different. Don't forget, God renamed Abraham, Abram, Abraham. And that means the father of many nations. And though the covenant blessings and the promise would pass down through Isaac, the child of the promise, the covenant itself, God's covenant with Abraham, includes the blessing that God will physically multiply Abraham's offspring. In other words, God told Abraham he's going to have a lot of kids. These six sons are the fruit of that promise. So not only is it okay for Abraham to remarry and have additional kids, it shows us that he believed God's promise that many nations would come from him. I know we all kind of miss Sarah. We've gotten to know her, haven't we? Pretty well. A lot of you have identified with Sarah. I think that the sermon uh, when, when Sarah laughed at God was probably one of those that connected with many of you more than others have in this series. 
We like Sarah because we, 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 we can identify with her. But in chapter 25, she's dead. Just like you will die. And Abraham is, is living. And Abraham is living accordingly, isn't he? He's pursuing the promises of God, and he can only do that with a wife. Going all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, multiplication in the Old Testament sense is the fruit of marriage. And so Abraham remarries. And with that framing in mind, we can better get to the point of Keturah's presence here in the text. Even though she was married to Abraham for 35 years, and that's a solid number, that's a long marriage, that's a good marriage, her presence here has more to do with Abraham's death than his life. You see that? She's mentioned right before he goes to the grave. Her presence here in, in Abraham's story has, is a greater connection to his death than his life with her. The, the Keturah era shows us how Abraham lived knowing that his death was coming. And I want to, I want you to I want to, I'll show you two things here. First of all, I want you to notice how Abraham prepares for his own death because this conversation is just as much about how he deals with these sons in Keturah as it is about her existence. Right? So I want you to notice how Abraham prepares for his own death. Look at verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, he gives all he had to Isaac. Right? Verse 6, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. Abraham knows he's going to die. He knows that. He says before he died, he did this. He knows he's going to die, and so he lives accordingly. And what that means properly is that he lives according to God's promises. He gave all that he had to Isaac because God said the inheritance would go through Isaac, so Abraham lived accordingly. He gave it all to Isaac. God told Abraham Isaac is the child of the promise. The covenant would go through promise. Abraham believed God, and he gave it all to Isaac. And by all that he had, because if you read that, too literalistically, you're like, well, if he gave everything to Isaac, then there's no gifts. Well, by all he had, what the text means by that is essentially he gives his camp, his wealth, his servants, his flock. He gave Isaac all that Isaac would need in order to live as a sojourner in the land of the promise, awaiting the promise, the promises of God. But to the sons of the concubines, that would be Keturah's sons, and I suppose Ishmael as well, Abraham gave them gifts and sent them away from Isaac and away from the land of the promise. Now, when did Abraham do this? Look at verse 6. While he was still living. Abraham knew he's going to die, and he lived accordingly. He knew that if he did not take care of his affairs before death, it would likely cause problems after his death. So he did the proactive thing, the responsible thing. He set his household in order before he died. Brothers and sisters, you're going to die. Live accordingly. First of all, live your life in such a way that you have something substantial to leave to your kids and grandkids. Most importantly, that means leave them your faith, your hope in Christ. And that's more than giving them a Bible when they turn five. No, live in such a way that your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids know where your hope is. Live such that they see it in your lifestyle, 
in your priorities, in your attitude, in what you say. Leave a legacy of faith to your family behind you. That's the most important thing, the single most important thing that you leave behind. But it's not all that we leave behind, right? I, one of the things that I try not to do is pretend that we are just spirit beings. We're not. We're physical beings, spirit indwelt, and we live in a physical place. And so there's physical stuff around us. There's material stuff. And as the Lord provides you with material stuff in this life, be prepared to leave that to those after you. Abraham had both. He had a legacy of faith and he had material wealth. So follow Abraham's example here. You're going to die, live accordingly, and write a will. That's the only time you'll probably ever hear me in a, from this pulpit with an application from the text tell you to write a will. But when it's in the text, I'm going to preach it. Don't let your death become a source of contention for your family. Let it be a time of bringing family together. Let it be a time of bringing family together in grief for your passing, but in, in remembering the stories and passing the stories along. Don't let it be a time of division. Let, let your passing be a time of prayer and scripture reading and your kids singing your favorite hymns. Let it be a time of rejoicing in Christ instead of bickering over wealth. Look what happens for Abraham in this. He prepares before he dies, and then look at the fruit of his preparation. Look at verse 9. Isaac and Ishmael actually get back together following Abraham's death. Do you see that in verse 9? Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, together buried him. Now, the last time we saw Isaac and Ishmael, Ishmael was making fun of Isaac, and Ishmael got sent away. But something about these next, I don't know how many years, allowed, I guess it would maybe be 70 years, I don't know, 60 years. Over that time, Abraham has sought to reconcile these sons. He's prepared for his own death in such a way that these sons are not enemies. And together, they come together to bury him. I believe that family reunion is due, at least partially, to Abraham's preparations for his own death. He acknowledged the certainty of his death, and he lived accordingly by setting his affairs in order. And if that's something you've already done, and I know many of you have, well done. If you haven't, the fact that you're here today tells me it's not too late. So come talk to me, come talk to our deacons, uh, and we'll help get you in contact with someone who can help you. This is, is a very, very practical way of loving your family and uh, leaving behind what the Lord has provided with you in a way that honors God. You're going to die, live accordingly, set your household in order. Secondly, though, this is that's the more practical, this is the more spiritual side of this application. You'll be dead and gone when you're dead and gone, so let the Lord take care of everything else. Okay, we look at this story of Abraham and these eight sons. So the six sons from Keturah, and then Ishmael, and then Isaac, eight sons. And yet only one of those sons receives the bulk of the inheritance, and he is not the firstborn son. That breaks all of the cultural norms that Abraham is, is, is living in. But Abraham orders his household this way. He, he leaves it all to Isaac because he's trusting the Lord. He knows that what he has from the Lord and the blessing, the land, and the offspring, this is different than what most people have in their life. 
what anyone else in Abraham's age had received. Ultimately, Abraham knows that the promise of the Messiah is coming to his family through Isaac. So his last testament, his last will are are a bit different than most families because no other family says the Christ is coming from my family except for Abraham. So Abraham leaves everything to Isaac, the secondborn, but he gives gifts to the other sons. And here's the good news for those other sons. This This is the good news. This is why Abraham can entrust those other sons to the Lord. The biblical reality is, as we read all of Scripture, the Messiah who is to come will take care of those other sons. So verse 5 says he gave all he had to Isaac, but then look carefully at verse 6. To the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. Abraham knows and trusts that Isaac is the son of the promise. He's the one to whom the inheritance is to go, particularly the land, and so dutifully he sends away these additional sons. Look at the directional here. He sends them east. By now, as we've studied Genesis for 25 chapters, whenever we see the word east, a little red light should blink above that word and make a beeping sound. What's so significant about that direction, east? Well, Adam and Eve, at the very beginning, were exiled from the Garden of Eden to the east. And so that's where they died, east of the garden, that grove of trees where God had dwelt with them. And then in chapter 4, Cain was sent further to the east. In chapter 11, it was those people of the east who founded Babylon, that city of rebellion against God. In chapter 13, Lot chose the cities of the east, including Sodom, instead of the hill country. And I didn't mention in, in chapter 23, but we see it again in our text today, the cave of Machpelah, that cemetery that Abraham purchased from the Hittites, that burial ground, it is where? It's east of the grove of trees where the Lord came to meet with Abraham. And just maybe, symbolic of Adam and Eve dying as a result of sin and that separation from God in the original grove of trees. So everything's east, everything away from God is east, everything away from Eden is east. Point being though, in Genesis geography, East means away from the presence of God, away from the land of promise, away from Eden. It's not coincidental then that east is the direction that Abraham sends these sons who are not of the promise and not of the inheritance. Though they are Abraham's offspring, for now they belong to the world, not the promise. Not yet. The story's not over. He doesn't send these sons away empty-handed. He sends them with gifts. Key word, gifts. Keep that in mind. Here's the thing. The prophet Isaiah prophesied that one day these sons who had been sent east will one day return. When will they return? The family will be reunited when the promised child comes, when the Messiah comes. And when he does, the sons of Keturah will come back to honor the promised one of Abraham. Let me prove it to you. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah is a little bit past the middle of your Bible. So it's a big one. There's a lot of chapters there. Isaiah chapter 60. 
you'll remember we read this chapter a lot when we were studying Matthew. Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 7. The prophet says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar. Your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Who? The sons coming from afar. All right? That's that's a clue. These are Abraham's sons coming back. Abraham's daughters coming back, carried uh, on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. Now look at verse 6. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Midian and Ephah. Now look back to our passage in verse 4. And there's those guys right there. And Sheba, he's in verse 3. So these guys are coming, and they're bringing gold, presumably the return on the investment Abraham has given them, as well as, look, they're also bringing frankincense. Why? Because these people historically trade in spices and incense, and it just so happens, this is really interesting, the name Keturah, their mother, that name means smoke of the incense. Just one of those funny Hebrew coincidences. But more importantly than the gifts that they return with, this is, this is better than the gold and the frankincense. These sons of Keturah bring good news. Well, in Greek, that word is evangelion. That's the word that we translate as gospel. These sons, returning with gifts, are bringing the announcement that the Christ has come, and they have come to praise him. Now, little ones, boys and girls, is there a time when men come from the east bringing gold and frankincense back to Israel because the Christ has come? And then, and then do these same wise men from the east also bow down and worship the Christ? They do. Absolutely. These are the wise men. Isaiah 60 is talking about these wise men from the east that we find in Matthew chapter 2. These guys are from Genesis chapter 25, all the way at the beginning of the story. They're the ones who come rejoicing that the king of the Jews, the king that would come from Isaac, their brother, has been born. And they even, when you, when you read the, this story in Matthew, they even seek to protect this Christ child from the false Jew who wants to kill him. This is, after all, their baby brother, isn't he? Now, Isaiah 60 goes on in verse 7, says even more than it's not just the sons of Keturah who will come back praising the Christ child He says in verse 7, All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Kedar 
and Nebaioth. Where did those tribes originate? If we go down to verse 13 of our Genesis 25 passage, we see that those, Kedar and Nebaioth, are the sons of Ishmael. So these sons of Ishmael, Isaiah says, will be welcomed into the presence of God at his altar because of the arrival of the Messiah, the Christ. So these sons who are sent away for a time here in Genesis 25, they're sent away for a time at the fullness of time. They will return to God's presence. They will return from the east to worship their brother, Jesus. So, application. Abraham leaving everything to Isaac and sending these sons away with gifts is not the end of the story. Abraham lived according to the promises of God. He trusted that God would one day bring restoration. But in his life, while he walked to the earth, he had to live in obedience to God and entrust the rest to God. And that's all we can do, isn't it? Live in obedience to God and trust God with the outcome. What does Romans 8.28 say? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Did that happen for Abraham? Amen. For those who are called according to his purpose, all works together for good. All works together for the glory of Christ for those who love God and are trusting in him. It might take a thousand years. But God in his wisdom is working all things together for our good and for his glory so we can trust him. So mothers and fathers and singles and widows and children, you're going to die. Live accordingly by preparing for your death, living in obedience to God's word and entrusting the future to the Lord because it's his. He's already there. He will be faithful then as he is today. Well, how do we do this? What does this look like? Well, let's ask Abraham. Let's move on to verses 7 and 8. It says, These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last, died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Now, the fact that Abraham died at age 175, I think it's more spectacular that he lived as a sojourner for 100 years than it is that he lived for 175 years. That's 100 years awaiting the fulfillment of God's promises. And yet, as we saw in our Hebrews scripture reading, not seeing those promises come to fullness. Hebrews eleven thirteen says, He died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them, greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged he was a stranger. He was an exile on the earth. 100 years a stranger, 100 years in exile. Nowhere to call his own except a cemetery that he owns. Knowing he's going to die without receiving the promises, and yet he lives, as our text says, look again at the text in verse 9, or verse 8. It says he lives fully. In verse 8, when it says he died as an old man full of years, our Bibles, the ESV, often echoes the old King James Bible. And the King James added that phrase, of years, and we've kept it for tradition's sake. I suppose they added it because it makes sense. It, It relates to his age. But the original text in the Hebrew simply says he died old and full. Full. What does that mean? 
It means like it sounds like. Like his, he, had a, he had a full belly after a meal. It means he was satisfied, though. He was satisfied. What it means is that Abraham didn't die discontented. He didn't die longing and, and wishing that he had lived a different life where he had more land, that he had his own country. There wasn't anything else that he wanted to accomplish in his life. He died fully satisfied. And that's true even while the book of Hebrews says that he desired a better country that is a heavenly one. So let me ask you, how can one be satisfied and full and pleased with this life and at the same time be desiring something better? Sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? Paradox, yes. Contradiction, no. Abraham lived full and satisfied in this life because he recognized that this life is not all there is. Abraham knew he would die before his, inherit, his, his descendants had inherited the land. God told him that would take place more than 400 years later. So he knows he's probably not living 400 some odd years. He knows he's going to die before his descendants inherit the land. Abraham knew that he would die before God's promises were fulfilled in the Messiah who was to come. Before the nations would receive the blessings from God, the Holy Spirit. The source of Abraham's contentment, his fullness, the source of his satisfaction in this life, even at the very end of a long life, and let's be honest, that's usually when we become more embittered, not more satisfied. But he grew more satisfied. The source of his joy in this life was his hope in the next. Abraham found greater satisfaction in hoping for that heavenly future that he could not touch, but he could see with eyes of faith, he found greater satisfaction hoping for that than he did in the things of this world that he could hold. It's paradoxical, but it's true. If you set your sights on this world, then you will live in fear of the certainty of death. Because death takes everything good in this world away from you. Are you tracking? Right? If, if, if all, the, all your hope is here, and you know, like we all do, that death is taking everything here away, then what will happen? You will fear death. Death will be your mortal enemy. So the more you have... The more you acquire, the more good stuff and good times and family and so on that you surround yourself with in this life, the more you have to lose. And the more you have to lose, the more miserable you are at the approach of death. Is that not true? It is. Which is why in an age of consumerism and materialism, when that secular, this life only life is the way that we look at the world, we prefer not to talk about death. We don't really know how to. We prefer to pretend that death doesn't exist, that we can keep it away with science and medicine and masks and entertainment and positive thinking. But if your hope 
is beyond this world. If your hope is in the Lord's promises and that heavenly city that is coming, then you can live your life with true joy, anticipating death with open arms. Because death for you is not the end, is it? It is not the great thief with the sword named Sting. For, for you and for all whose hope in Christ, death is, as Richard Sibb says, only the grim porter into a stately palace. Christopher Love calls the deathbed the suburbs of heaven. Death is but a gateway into the presence of Christ for you, Christian. Death doesn't take away anything from you except your sin and your broken body. Praise God. And what you receive in that great inheritance of the new creation is the fullness of the good that has been tasted in this life. And because of that, the things of this world can be properly enjoyed, as Abraham properly enjoyed them. Abraham can live as a sojourner for 100 years and still be full because all that he has enjoyed, he has enjoyed as a foretaste of the goodness of the next life and the fulfillment of God's promises. I was reading some comments yesterday written by a pastor from the mid-1500s. And from what I could gather from his notes, I'm guessing there were some folks in his church who were struggling to live as sojourners, maybe feeling sorry for themselves, maybe complaining, grumbling. Who knows, maybe he was the one who was grumbling and his notes were to himself. But, but he essentially says this to them about Abraham. He says, you should be ashamed of yourself if you can't bear a little bit of trouble for one or maybe a few years, Abraham was a sojourner for 100 years. It gives you a little perspective, doesn't it? If Abraham, the father of our faith, the one who we look to for guidance on how to walk in faith, if he can live 100 years as a sojourner, brother, you can make it to the end of the week. God was faithful to Abraham. God will be faithful to you. Abraham's life in these, these last few chapters could be summarized by two of his belongings, his tent and his graveyard. His tent and his graveyard. He lived in a tent all his life, or all those 100 years, and the only property he owned was the graveyard. Kind of tells you what he was all about. He knew that his dwelling place was temporary and that he was soon to move into his more permanent housing, the cave made of stone. William Perkins says the life of a Christian is nothing else but a meditation of death. That's Abraham's life, isn't it? Here's my tent, here's my temporary dwelling, there's my grave, there's my permanent dwelling, and all I have is in between. With that perspective, with that perspective, you also can be content with what you have. Because like Abraham, we're looking forward to a greater reality, a more permanent dwelling, one made with not human hands, but God's own hands. And we see glimpses of that, that unseen reality that Abraham's looking forward to. We even see that in the passage. We don't see it explicitly in our passage. We have to wait till Hebrews to get it explicitly 
But in our passage, we have some hints. Look at the way that Moses describes Abraham's death. Look at verse 8. Abraham breathed his last, or as the King James says in far superior English, Abraham gave up the ghost. Can we just start saying that, please? He gave up the ghost, and he died in a good old age, an old man and full, and was gathered to his people. There it is, gathered to his people. What does that mean? Does that mean that Abraham's bones were taken to be with Sarah's bones? It does not. It does not mean that. No, gathered to his people, his Old Testament speak for his soul went on to where souls go when they depart the body. We get this idea all over the Old Testament. Even in Genesis, we see it again and again and again. We see it with Ishmael, just in verse 17. Look at verse 17. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. And then we see it with Isaac in Genesis chapter 35. And Isaac breathed his last. He died and was gathered to his people. And, and then Jacob in, in chapter 49. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. It's not speaking of their burial. It's speaking of what happens to the soul when it, when it leaves the body. This is the Old Testament way of talking about that, that what we call the intermediate state between this life and the resurrection that is to come. It has something to do with going to be with those other people who were hoping in the promises of the Lord, but who died before the promises were fulfilled. And honestly, we don't get a whole lot of details about this place in the Scriptures. We know that it's called Sheol, and it is the place that, as we say in, in our confession, that, that Jesus descended to after his death and gathered up the faithful to take them to the presence of God. But the point here is that even here in this text about death, we're reminded that there is a life beyond. That's what Moses' tone is in chapter 25 for us as he's writing this for us. And as Jesus says, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. This is more evidence for us that the Lord is giving us, and he's telling us this is not all there is. What you can see is not all there is, and what the Lord has in store for us is greater than what you're experiencing now. He's telling us you're going to die, but that's not the end, so live accordingly. Live according to the promises of God, and I'll say it again because the text says it again, you can trust God with the rest. Because I know that's our hesitation, isn't it? I, if I don't take care of this, I've got to control all the world around me. I've got to control everything or else it won't happen. Live according to the promises of God. Live in obedience to the Lord and trust God with the rest. Look at the rest of our passage because we're going to see that truth that we can trust God with the rest again and again. Look down at verse 11. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac his son, and Isaac settled at Behir Lahai Roy. Verse 12, these are the generations of Ishmael. And then after that, we see these 12 princes, these 12 sons. What's significant about those two verses? Well, God told Abraham that the covenant blessing that he had received, that Abraham received, would go to his son Isaac. And sure enough, verse 11 says, 
God did what he said he was going to do after Abraham died. After Abraham died. Abraham had no control over this world or God after Abraham died. But he trusted the Lord, and the Lord took care of the rest. Likewise, God told Abraham way back in chapter 17 that he was going to bless Ishmael. God was going to bless Ishmael, and he would make Ishmael fruitful and multiply him greatly. And then God told Abraham, he shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. And sure enough, what does our text tell us? God did what he said he would do. Now, what can we learn from this? That God is faithful to his word while we're alive, and God is faithful to his word even after we die. His word is as sure as his very being. All flesh is grass, Isaiah says, and all its beauty like the flower of the field. The, the grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it, which tells us the Lord is sovereign over death. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So Abraham dies like the flowers of the field, like the grass of the field, and yet God's word and God's faithfulness to his word lives on. And it lives on through Isaac. And then Isaac will die. And God's word and his faithfulness to his word lives on through Jacob. And then Jacob will die. And then Jacob's sons die. And then generation after generation of, after generation of Israel dies. And God's word lives on. His promises live on. And this is why when Peter, the apostle Peter, looks back at that passage that Isaiah wrote... That though we die like grass and flowers, the word of God stands forever. Here's what Peter says of that same principle. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, All flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word, the word of the Lord, this word is the good news that was preached to you. So let's draw it together. God's faithfulness to his word went beyond Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah. And his faithfulness to his promises to Abraham continued all the way to Christ. The very word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. God's word. This is what we learned from Abraham's story. This is my summary statement. God's word is so true, so sure that it is as if God's word is the manifestation of God himself. And in fact, he is. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ is the good news that Keturah's sons came proclaiming. Jesus Christ is is the word of God given to Abraham who became flesh. The promise to God given to Abraham who became flesh. Jesus Christ is the very substance of the faithfulness of God. And so we will finish here in 25 where we started. You're going to die. Live accordingly. And what does that mean? Well, live knowing that God has been faithful to his word to Abraham to send the Christ. Live with your gaze 
set on Christ. Because Christ is now in the presence of God, so too will you be. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, so too will you be. Because the inheritance of the new creation is in Christ, so is your inheritance in Christ. Because the reconciliation of the nations, Ishmael's sons and Keturah's sons, and everyone else, because the reconciliation of the nations to God is in Christ, so too is your reconciliation to God. You can live anticipating death because your life is in Christ. Matthew Henry says it this, and this is how we'll close. He whose head is in heaven need not fear to put his feet in the grave. It's good, isn't it? Let's thank the Lord for the confidence that we have in Christ.